Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so excited to present my interview with Tony-winning book writer Robert Horn. Robert is currently the book writer for Shucked, the hilarious new musical about corn playing on Broadway, and Hercules, the adaptation of Disney's hit film that's currently running at the Paper Mill Playhouse. In addition to these fabulous projects, he also penned the book for Tootsie and Thirteen on Broadway, and has written special material for Dame Edna, Bette Midler, RuPaul, and more. His illustrious screenwriting career includes scripts for such projects as Designing Women, Living single, teen beach movie, and Sharpay's Fabulous Adventures. And now, without further ado, here's Robert Horn. You too. You too. Well, so I'd love to start by asking, how did you first become interested in theater and in writing? Well, those are two different questions. Uh, <laughs> I became interested in theater when I was very, very young. My mother, there was a television show on way before you were born, before I was born even. <laughs> When my mother was a teenager, she was secretary or an assistant to um, Ed Sullivan. He uh-huh. had a program called the Ed Sullivan Show, which was a very, it was sort of the, the early days of variety shows. And he was the host. And she would book all the Broadway, work with all the Broadway talent that would be booked on the show. So my mother was a theater fanatic and started taking me to shows at a very, very young age. And like two, two or three of the first shows I ever saw I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I fell in love with theater and the fantasy of theater and that world and that that temple that is is a Broadway house. And I just walked in and I knew. And I think and so as I grew up, I originally I was like, oh, I'm going to be an actor, which I was horrific at. I think everybody <laughs> who starts off, anybody, everybody who ends it up as anything in this business other than an actor wanted to start off as an actor. <laughs> But I quickly learned that that's not what I wanted to do, that I sort of wanted to be the one to give birth to something rather than bring it to life. And and that for me, that's what relationship, my relationship with actors are. And so um, I decided I was gonna be a writer. And and then, then a whole other journey began. And what were some of those shows that you saw early on then? I think the first show I ever saw was a was a Kander and Ebb musical called um, called Seventy Girls Seventy uh-huh. with Mildred Natwick and Hans Conried. Nobody ever knows the show, but there's some very famous songs from it, like Coffee and a Cardboard Cup and a whole bunch. Of, um, and then the second show I saw was Fiddler on the Roof, and I was like, "Them's my people." Uh, uh, uh. And uh, and then. Um, she would take me to, sh- I, she took me to see Irene with Jane Powell at the time. All these people are long gone. Um, and just a series of shows that I fell in love with the, with the, with the genre. I grew up in the early days of television. You know, I grew up as, a, I was a twin. And so my twin sister and I, when we were very, very young, would watch 
early television sitcoms. And so I fell in love with the medium of television before I knew what theater was. Um, and then, and then I, I went to see my first show. And so even though she took you to the theater, were your parents supportive of your interest in doing that as a career? And um, Well, my mother, I didn't have a father. My father left when I was born, and so I never oh, met him. I'm sorry. Uh, but my mother was very much so. My mother was a girl who grew up in Brooklyn and loved theater and went to theater and loved that I um, was interested in that. She would take me to musical movies when I was very, very young. She, when, when, my Fair Lady came out and Sound of Music came out. She would take me to Radio City Music Hall to see all these, to see these, these movies. And, and yeah, she loved that I loved theater. She loved that I, I got that bug. So she, she also knew at a very early age, you know, this was a very different time that we lived in. And she knew at a very early age that I was going to be gay. She knew that I had certain things about me. Um, and my, I had a very weird childhood, but and my mom struggled with certain with certain things, um, but she told me it was a very interesting thing because I remember I guess maybe I was five or six years old, but I remember clearly her saying to me, "You're going to be different than everybody else, and don't let anybody tell you it's not a wonderful thing because it is a wonderful thing." Uh -huh. so she gave me confidence at a very young age to pursue my dreams and be who I wanted to be. Um, so those sort of there was sort of this serendipitous. Uh, a, a meeting of passion and and confidence. Oh, that's wonderful then to hear that. And what was the process like of, of beginning to sort of train and study and all that? As uh, well, my uh, that that's it's sort of a long story, uh, but I'll keep it as short as I can. <laughs> so, uh, and I haven't been secret about this. So ultimately, my mom. Uh, had, we saw, we were really poor and there were some problems in the house and my mother had to give up custody of her children. I was sent to live in an orphanage as was my twin sister someplace oh. else. And I ran away when I was very young. I ran away when I was like just a little over 13 years old and ran back to New York. This was in upstate New York. And so I grew up in, I was in New York in the 1970s as a young, at your age, even a little younger, right. on my own. Um, and my teachers were all the show chorus line and all the public theater just getting started. All those, all those, the incredible um, renaissance that was theater in New York in those early days. Michael Bennett and 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 I mean just these the this uh, the world of theater in the in the nineteen seventies and um, I went. You could second act anything you could go stand in the back of the house for two dollars I mean so I saw everything and that was my teacher I learned by going to see everything and what and and learning what did I like what didn't I like how did people do things and the theater was then as it is now a very incestuous community everybody knows everybody and I just hung out in that world and got to know people and then I, I wanted to be a playwright and I had no success. It was a really hard time. And then the 1980s hit and New York went into a, into a, into a real tailspin. New York went into a financial crisis. The AIDS crisis hit. People that, the artists that I loved and were dear friends with started to uh, move on, pass on, pass away. And it was a horrible time. And so I went out to California. My mom had moved out many years ago to California uh, at, with my sister. And I said, let me give that a try. And so I moved to Los Angeles and just started, continued to write and see, you know, what would happen. And then ended up 
with this career in television that I never expected through a series of unforeseen circumstances <laughs> ended up writing a television. I met some guy through a friend who was working at a network who wanted to be a writer. He said, let's write something together. And I said, okay. And he showed it to someone at that network and that person showed it to an agent and that agent said, let me see if I can book you a job. And they booked us our first job. And suddenly I had this career and it was just years and years of being in New York and learning my craft. I always say success is just this meeting of opportunity and ability. You have to be lucky enough to get that opportunity and you have to be ready when it comes. And so I just, over the, I just got my first job and my second job and then got a production deal at a studio and then another one. And I just kept building and building, but I really wanted to do theater. I loved musical theater. And I was working at, I had an overall production deal at Warner Brothers studio. And there was a, there was this, this writing team there, this producing team called Miller Boyette. I don't know if you know who Miller Boyette is, but led by Bob Boyette and Tom Miller. And they did shows like um, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy and Full House and Family Matters and Step by Step. And they were just legends of television. And Bob Boyette was a theater fanatic. And we teamed up to do a pilot. And all we wanted to do was talk about theater. And, year, and we became very good friends. And years later, he left television and went to New York. He became premier producer of New York, 10 Tony Awards, oh. made a deal with the National Theater to bring all those shows over to, from, from London. And he called me and he said, I remember you want to be in theater. Come work with me. And he gave me my first job. And that's oh. how I got into theater. So it was all wow. very sort of luck and circumstance and being in the right place at the right time and being ready when those things happen. And when you were in New York on your own at the beginning there in the 70s and 80s, were you working at small jobs in the entertainment industry? I, or, or no, no, I did. I did a lot of things. Um, first of all, back then, the city had a work program where in the, during the summer when you were off of school, um, they would pay you minimum wage to go and give you a job. And so if you were a company and you needed an employee and you didn't want to pay a lot of money, the city would give you the place. So I had all kinds of crazy jobs. I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, testing the air for pollution. I ran the front desk at the Martha Graham Dance Studio. Um, I was a waiter and busboy at Serendipities and Yellow Fingers and all these crazy restaurants. I was a roller skating waiter. I was a... <laughs> I was a messenger for a travel agency. You do whatever you can do to survive. And then what I started doing, back then before the internet existed, there was a magazine in New York called Backstage. I think it may even still exist. And yeah. that's how actors would find out about auditions and things. You would read back, you would get Backstage magazine and all the auditions yeah. would be listed on it. And Sorry. so what I did was I put an ad in Backstage magazine saying, I would write you monologues or scenes for actors, for auditions and classes and things like that. And I started making money. I would charge like uh -huh. 20 bucks and I would write scenes and monologues for actors to audition with. So they would have original material. Um, and that's how I started making money writing. And do you feel that these odd jobs you sort of had early on, that they influenced anything about your sense of humor or the way you would write? You no, know, I think everything that is ever, every life has always influenced my sense of humor. As I, as I said, you know, having grown up as a ward of the state and grown up in, in what some people might see as sort of alternative uh, living situations as a young kid, you, two things can happen. You can, you can navigate life feeling like a victim 
for me, or you could find the humor in, in everything. And I just found that humor. I found the humor in it. Um, uh, I think when you're, uh, you know, I was, I was young, I was, I was gay, I was confident, and I wasn't going to let anything be an obstacle to what I knew I wanted in life. And so I just found a way to, I, and I found that if I could make people laugh, I wouldn't get beat up because I lived in a place that where there was violence and there was, you know, there's a lot of kids that were taken out of their homes that had either uh, emotional problems or, or, or drug problems. And, you know, you're living and, and it was not an easy place to be, but because I was, could be funny, uh, nobody would beat the crap out of me. <laughs> I would make and so I used humor as a survival technique, but I also, I don't know, I think my my mom instilled in me the ability to be able to laugh at anything and know that every, everything that happens, um, there's, you can find humor in, even in the most maudlin of ways. There's wow. humor in everything. And that I that's how I sort of approach everything. I always say, you're not going to hire me to write a drama, a melodrama. That's not where my, my mind immediately finds the pathos or the the humorous pathos in any situation. And that's what comedy is. Writing comedy, comedy is always grounded in drama. Comedy is always grounded in heightened situations, but they're dramatic situations and hopefully relatable situations. And when you can do that, then you can, then you just, your angle at writing it is, is, or viewing it as an audience is always through a comedic lens. So I just think I always just tried to find the humor in things. Right. And did you find that being out was different in the New York scene than in the LA scene or? Well, by the time, when I came out of the New York scene, I'm not gonna date myself too much, but I was really, <laughs> I was really young. When I came out of the New York scene, um, uh, gay pride, I just sort of found its footing. I think Stonewall had happened a few years prior. Uh, Stonewall happened in what, 68 or 69. 69. And here I was in, you know, sort of like, this is like the early, mid, early to mid 1970s. So 75, 70. And gay, the gay culture ha had started to celebrate itself, had sort of found its um, empowerment and declared itself important and, and, so I was lucky to come out and live in New York at a time where gay culture was finding its footing and and uh, uh, demanding its equality. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, being gay in New York at the time was a celebration and it was wild and kind of, well, you're young, I won't say certain things, but there was a... <laughs> There was an openness and a, there was a freedom to it. There were also many obstacles. People were not happy with that fact. So there was the politics of it versus the, uh, the, the reality of living in it. And it was fascinating. By the time I came to LA, obviously it was post-AIDS. Uh, the gay, cult, gay culture had become a very different thing. Um, uh, but listen, I, 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 I believe... I've always believed that we have to celebrate who we are and navigate the world with honesty and integrity. And you're going to always find obstacles when that happens. There are always going to be people who are going to not like who you are, what you have to say, what you do, all those things. And you have to just block that out. And, and um, so I've always celebrated gay culture. Um, and I, I've never, you know, I, actually I find in some ways 
uh, living an alternative lifestyle, which I don't believe they're alternative lifestyles. They're only alternative lifestyles because people label them that. Um, but I believe it's harder now than I, it ever has been. There's so much, um, there's an awakening happening that I think is really important. At the same time, I've never seen so much resistance to it in our nation than, than I have recently. So it's as a writer, it's an interesting thing to observe because you just want to write about it. You just want to explore that. Yeah. Right. And so I know a show that you worked on early on was Designing Women. I'm not sure if that's the first show that you were on that you were mentioning earlier, but how did that come about? If Well, it was that wasn't that was my first big show. So I, I had done a, a series of shows before that that were all failures that didn't work. You just sort of and I and and then I didn't work for a while. And I was like, well, I don't think this is ever going to happen for me. And I actually enrolled in Marinella Beauty School because I was like, I'm going to be a hairdresser. Obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to make a living. I was working with a, a writing partner, a wonderful writer. His name is Danny Margosis. And he uh, worked, again, I told you, he worked at CBS. He worked at, at one of the networks. And um, so we were working together and somebody from the network gave the, who, the, the executive in charge of that show, our one of our script, spec scripts. And they called and said, we want you to come in and um, work on the show. And that's how it started. And we got on the show and then within a matter of, it was a very interesting thing. There was a big shakeup on that show for a while. And literally within a matter of months, we went from being staff writers to running the show. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating thing. And there was a, there's a very famous, um, he was a stand-up comedian and then he became a director named David Steinberg. I don't know if you know who David Steinberg is, but you should Google him because he's a, a very, he's a fascinating, brilliant man. He was the director at the time and he, took my partner and I aside and said, I'm going to teach you everything. I'm going to teach you how to edit. I'm going to teach you how to cast. I'm going to teach you how to write. I'm going to teach you how to do everything, how to run a show. And he taught, um, he taught me how to be a showrunner. And what was it like to have to write sort of in the style of these characters that had already been established? And That's a good question. You know, when you work on a TV show that you did not create, your job, it's a very interesting job. You have to, you get hired for your talent, but then you also have to write in the style of the show that was created. Now, it just so happened that Designing Women was a show that was very, very topical. I love, I, I loved writing women. Uh, you know, I, as a, at a young age, I grew up with, with all women. So I, my, I grew up with a grandmother and a mother and a, a sister. And so I was surrounded by women. And I think, and, and I, so I sort of navigated life a little bit through, through that point of view, because I didn't really have a lot of male role models. I had all female role models. And so writing on that show was so easy for me because I was a fan of the show before I saw, before I started writing it. And I loved writing empowered women. I, I, I think the world has changed a little bit. It's much harder as a male writer, as a male identifying writer to write the experience of women now. I think we're living in an age where a, there's a, an expectation of a certain authenticity. I agree with some of that and not with other parts of it. Um, I think if Tennessee Williams was only allowed to write men, we wouldn't have some of the most iconic female characters in literature. But mm -hmm. but, but I understand it. Um, 
but I, but I, it wasn't that hard. The, only, the difference was it was very Southern because it took place in Atlanta and I was a New York Jew. So I, I used to say I would write a Jewish and they would say it's Southern. Um, but I got to tell you, a lot of it was this sort of um, relationship that I had with the actress, with the actors on the show who I am still close to, the ones that are still with us. Um, and it was a, we worked together on making that, on, on writing, uh, uh, keeping that show as authentic as, as Linda Bloodworth Thomason had created it. And Harry Thomason, yeah. I loved that show. I mean, imagine cutting your teeth, your first big TV show, and it's something as iconic as Designing Women. I mean, it was like, I just, I felt like I was the luckiest person all the time. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, love I had a really good time on that show. Still plays. There's still, you go to gay bars and they still, there's some very famous scenes from Designing Women that still play in, in bars and, and are part, sort of a part of, um, of our culture, of gay culture that are iconic. Right, right. And so you mentioned that it was a show that was very sort of issue forward and progressive in that way. And what were some of the issues that you chose to tackle when you were writing it? And oh, we're going back a long time now. Um, you know, uh, we we ta I tackled issues. I'm trying to remember, I tackled tackled issues of misogyny. I tackled issues of um, faith and religion. Uh, I tackled issues of uh, interpersonal family relationships. Uh, I'm a twin and I have I had a, a very close, uh, 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 special relationship with my sister and two of the characters on the show were sisters that loved each other, but also were very different. And and I loved exploring the relationship between the two of them. So we there was a lot of issues. They, they never... Um, the CBS or Sony Studios, who were, uh, never uh, asked us to shy away from anything we wanted to. There was an issue, I, I, an episode I know, I remember I wrote where one of, it was Jan Hooks was, I think, in that one. And she went in, um, she wore men's clothing and identified as, as a man to see how a deal they were making would be different if a man wasn't dealing with four women, but were rather dealing with a man. So we explored a lot. I wrote an episode, I remember writing an episode where Annie Potts thought she saw the face of Jesus in her shovel. And it was about, it was about faith and the role faith plays in our lives and what that means. Um, so they let us explore lots of, lots of interesting things. And then I got to write the very last episode of Designing Women, which was a two-parter, which was a spoof on Gone with the Wind. And I, that, that was a blast. And so we um, we talked before about writing for an existing show, but I'd also be curious to ask about writing for an established personality like RuPaul or Bette Midler or Dame Edna, all people that you wrote for. Yeah. Well, it's also very different because they have they have you're you're literally supporting their vision. Um, with with all of them, you just try to be funny. You just try <laughs> to write great jokes and great material, and they're all very. They were all pretty amazing to work with uh -huh. um uh they all off if you, you're talking about those three for example they all very much know who they are and what and 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 what they do very well and you're usually brought in because they appreciate your your talent and your ability but you're there to serve their vision you are not there in any way to bring yours other than your talent um it's fun. It's it's a lot of fun, you know. With that, I'm sitting. I was sitting. At, now you got to remember, I'm a kid who grew up 
in the 1970s and 80s. I mean, it's Bette Midler. You, you, right. No matter how successful you get, there's a whole other level of success that you just don't feel you'll ever, you're, you navigated. I'm sitting here literally at this desk and the phone rang and it said blocked caller or whatever it was. And I answered the phone and I went, hello. And this voice just said, Robert. And I said, yes. And this voice said, well, hi, doll, it's Bette. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And she goes, no, no, it's Bette Midler. I said, wait, what? <laughs> she was looking for somebody to write her tour and two different people on two different coasts, one in New York and one in LA said, you should call Robert Horn. Both gave her, both friends, people I know gave her my number. And she just called me and said, I hear you're the guy. Do you want to write, work with me? And I said, do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, about a week later, I met her at her manager's office in Beverly Hills. And I fell in love with her. She was, she's not, she's not the body, uh, uh, I, uh, sort of character that she created as a persona. She's brilliant. She's intuitive. She knows her brand. She appreciates talent. She's no nonsense. She's generous. I remember one night, we, we worked together for about two or three months. And I remember one night there was an earthquake here in LA and my phone rang instantly and it was Bette Midler. And I was like, Bette Midler is calling me because there's an earthquake. I'm like, how many people on the list didn't answer before she got to me? Um, but she, when you work with her, she brings you into her family and her life. And she was great. All of them were great. Uh, uh, Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna was a very different thing. Barry Humphreys would not be Dame Edna unless he was dressed as Dame Edna. Uh -huh. He would not do the character as Barry Humphreys. Um, so that was so was, that was really interesting. And 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 writing that was a very different thing. And RuPaul, I, RuPaul, when I wrote the RuPaul Christmas special, I sort of uh, did it external. They were that was in the BBC and that was in London. I was doing it from LA, so I didn't even actually at that point meet RuPaul. I was just sending in material. We were just uh -huh. writing it. So uh, and years later, I did meet RuPaul and we've become friends. So, yeah. And with Dana, now that was technically your first Broadway show and Broadway experience. And, and that was, again, Bob Boyette was one of the producers of that. And they uh, had, uh, uh, Barry Humphreys had won the Tony Award for his performance. And this was about two years later and he was coming back with another show. And Bob called me and said, will you sit with Barry and just, brainstorm some jokes and ideas and I said absolutely actually the first that wasn't that yes that was my first official working on a Broadway show there was another show um that I sort of worked uh, helped uh, on um which I won't say what it is but I had gotten I was writing a an animated feature for for Walt Disney Company and I got a phone call from um the legendary, iconic, incredible Tom Schumacher, who runs wow. Disney Theatrical. And they were working on a project, I won't say what, and he was liking what I was doing on this animated movie. And uh, myself and my writing partner at the time, Danny Margosis, and he said, can you help us with this project? I need 20 big laughs. <laughs> I said, absolutely. And so that was my first chance to actually sort of get in on a work on a Broadway show. I won't say which one it was. Um, and I'm not even gonna say if they used the material or not, but that was my first, it, it, Tom Schumacher has been very, very instrumental in my, and supportive of my career. And, you know, it's called show business and because it's show and it's business. And part of success is hoping, is finding people and, and hoping people that will mentor you and teach you and believe in you and give you confidence 
to pursue a very competitive, very difficult industry. And, and people like Tom Schumacher and Bob Boyette and, and, and a number of people, Yvette Bowser and a lot of people in my life um, have been that for me. I try to be that for your generation, for this next generation of talent that I'm passing the torch to, you know, and, and I'm watching theater change. I'm watching new voices come in and how do we, how do we support and elevate the new voices of our medium, um, but also teach them the things that we've learned and hope that they understand them and learn and, and learn from them. So people gave me that. So Tom Schumacher and Bob Boyette were, uh, uh, and then Scott Sanders um, gave me my first big opportunity. So yeah, Dame Edna was the first. And then after Dame Edna, um, so we did Dame Edna. And then after that, uh, I got asked to do a show called Lone Star Love, which was a bit of a disaster. <laughs> If you Google Lone Star Love and Randy Quaid, you will, I'm not going to say anything about it. There's a lot of information about that. It was one of the craziest experiences I've ever been in. We did that show. We did that at the Fifth Avenue in Seattle. And then after that, uh, Bob Boyette, again, was in LA and said, I'm doing the show at the Music Center. I want you to come and see it and give me your thoughts. And it was 13, the musical. And oh. I saw it in LA. And he said, look, I'm bringing it to New York. Um, we want to go sort of in a different direction with the book. I want you to meet the composer, Jason Robert Brown, who was living in LA also, and we met and we really hit it off. And so I wrote 13 um, uh, with Jason and there was a version that Dan Ellish had written and then I came on and worked on the Broadway version. Um, and then that was my first, uh, that was the first show that actually was my, was mine and, and uh, uh, was on Broadway. So that, and then from 13, uh, I don't remember what was next. Uh, uh, oh. Well, I think it was um, Tootsie that was next for those, which later on. And in between that, that didn't go. And I don't remember. Uh, oh, I did a show. I did a show in Dallas that didn't. It was called Moonshine. And it was a very early version of what is now Shocked, although the two shows have not, are not related. But there was an earlier version of I worked with those composers and it was that. And then I did. And then I did. I did Tootsie. Right. So, yeah. And the way I got Tootsie was. Scott Sanders, who was the producer of it, who's an incredible producer, and he went, he produced Color Purple and, and many other shows and now has the, is doing the movie Color Purple and did the movie In the Heights and is just doing incredible things. Um, he came into a reading of this musical called Moonshine that I did, called me into his office and said he had the rights to like five or six different movies from the Sony catalog because he had, was an executive at Sony. And he said, what, what movie do you want to write? And um, I had picked a different movie. Tootsie was one of them and I had picked a different movie. Um, and then they had been working on Tootsie for years and they were, there were other writers and it just all wasn't working out. And he called me and he said, I would like you to meet with the composer to see if you'd be interested in writing Tootsie. And I said, no, I didn't uh. want to write Tootsie at first. I felt, I felt as, it was a big target on my back. It was, it's an iconic movie. The world had changed and so much of the movie I felt was not appropriate for where we were as a changing culture. Um, and then I met with, but I said, I, I'll definitely meet with the composer because it was David Yazbek and I love David Yazbek's work. And we, David and I sat together and we said, let's, if let's do our version of this. Let's, let's look at this as a short story. Let's look at this as a story about a guy who was told he could no longer do the one thing he loved more than anything, how far would he go to do that? And how would that destroy his life? Um, and we agreed 
to approach it that way. And so I said, then I said, yeah, I would do it. And the rest is sort of what happened. Oh, yeah. And what do you think makes an ideal composer and lyricist to collaborate with? And you have to be both, you have to know, you have to know the tone, you have to know the, the character, you have to be writing the same show. A great musical feels like one person wrote it. It should always feel like one person wrote it. There are musicals, which I won't name, but can, where it's so clear that the music has nothing to do with the book, which has nothing to do with the choreography. And it's like, these people were not doing working on the same show. A great collaboration is listening to the other person, being open to bad ideas, because from bad ideas come really good ideas. Um, it's a really interesting thing. You're teamed up with, uh, uh, as a writer, I'm teamed up with a, of musicals. I'm teamed up with a composer or composers, and you literally are you 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 get you get married. You literally say hi. What's your name? Okay, hi. We're getting married now because we're gonna have to sit in a room and expose all our intimacies, all our vulnerabilities. We're gonna have to be honest with each other. We're gonna and uh, in order to when you're writing musical music and musicals. Um, you know, it's a lot of their inner monologues or they're, or they're, they're, they're forwarding the story. You're learning so much about a character and the emotional state of a character through their music. If you are not open to being vulnerable as an artist with that person who's writing the music, it's not going to feel authentic. So it's a crazy thing. You work with somebody, you be, I've been very lucky because a lot of the, most of the composers that I've worked with have become are my family now, are my dearest friends. Uh, and so uh, uh, I've been really lucky though, but I think sometimes that happens because you become so intimate so fast. It's right. sort of like, it's sort of like dating sites, you know? <laughs> so if you go on a dating site, you go out on a date with somebody and you get married that night. That's sort of what it is. <laughs> and so for, to go back to a little bit to 13, what was sort of already there with the book and what were the changes that needed to be? Um... Look, there was a lot there. I just think the approach to the story was different and the style of comedy was became a little different. Uh, I, I, you know, it's in, in fairness of all the other people that were involved, I won't really go into detail. I think everybody has a hand in that show and, and um, what it ultimately was. I think the sad thing about 13 was A, uh, it, it was, it opened the year of the financial housing crisis. So 12 shows closed the same show, the same day we did. Um, I think 13 never really became what it had the potential to become, but I, it had a cult following. People would come back two, three, four times and see it. I think it was also parents were like, wait, you want me to spend how much money to see kids on stage? This was sort of before there, there was sort of a, a hunger for that. I think it was even before High School Musical and all that had happened. And so I think that people didn't want to spend that much money to see a bunch of 13-year-olds on stage. <laughs> but the musical, the Broadway musical version of 13, actually had some very, a beautiful message to it. And I think it was, it, I think it's, personally think it's sort of underrated in, in, in people think it's about kids and it is, but it's also about coming of age and what it means, what, and, and in the Jewish culture, what it means to have this rite of passage called the bar mitzvah. Um, and we dealt, and we made the choice to write that show with tropes. So, you know, you have the mean girl and the jock guy, mm -hmm. and because we felt by using tropes, you, it sort of, in comp, you could sit there as a kid or as an adult 
and relate to what was going on because like, oh, I remember when I was in high school or junior <laughs> high school and that happened. Um, I loved that show and I loved working with, with everybody involved in it. Jason and I uh, are still brothers and, and we just got to do the movie together, which was a whole other experience. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I think what happens a lot of times in musicals is it's the Wizard of Oz. You start off on that journey alone and then suddenly the the scarecrow is with you and then the tin man is with you and then the lion is with you and you 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 just sort of um bring people along on that journey and they add their talents to it and that's what that's what it was 13 started with jason and dan and then i came along and then jeremy sams came along and christopher catelli came along and yeah. all these other people and we all sort of put our our touch on it oh yeah and what was it like to adapt it for the screen and during the pandemic and all that and it was challenging <laughs> doing anything filming anything during the pandemic was really really hard it, the the uh, the executive that came to us and said i want to do this at netflix um was a huge fan of the musical on broadway and um she's fantastic her she she loves the musical she loves the show but it's challenging writing a movie is a very different art form right and you're dealing with um, network executives, studio executives that have very strong opinions. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, I think, I think we lost certain things from the musical that we loved, but gained certain things that were right for this version. That's what I'll say. Right. So I, there were songs that were taken out because uh, uh, the studio thought they didn't work. Uh, and I miss them. Uh, then there's new songs that Jason wrote that I thought were were wonderful. Uh, I th I personally think the movie skewed younger. They wanted it to skew younger than the musical did, because even though the Broadway musical was about thirteen year old kids, there was a there was a there was a lovely sort of cynicism about it in it, and uh, and a. Uh, um, uh, it was it was it was kind of grown up in its humor, and I think for Netflix because it was for the family division, we needed to keep it the humor at a, for for a younger audience, um, and so that I think that was the challenge and the difference. But I, I love the movie, and um, people seem to like it. So it's just it's so different than the than the than the show. Yeah, and. How involved do you like to be in the casting of, of the shows you write in? I like to be, I'm not always allowed, but I like to be the final voice of the casting. Oh. My humor is very, like it or don't like it. And there are people on both sides of that. <laughs> my humor is very specific. It's got a, my humor is musical. It, it, in the same way, Alan Menken is, and David Zippel are doing the music for Hercules. They're going to tell you who they believe can sing their music. You know, Jason Robert Brown will tell you, you can sing my music and I don't think you. My dot, my, my writing is very, uh, the rhythms of it, the understanding of the comedy of it, the, the, it's, it's choreography, it's musical. And so I feel like it's a really important thing for me to be able to sit there and say, that person is fantastic. Or I just don't think that person understands the rhythms of it. Um, the same way a composer sits in the room and says, great voice, but I just don't think they, whatever. So I like to be very involved in that. Right. 
And usually I, I am allowed to be, or contractually I ask for that. And because the, there's nothing worse than watching somebody do your material that can't do your material. <laughs> right. And has there been a part that you found especially hard to cast in one of your shows? Most of my shows. <laughs> oh, most of my shows. Interestingly enough, Tootsie was very easy to cast because I worked with a director who is one of the best comedic directors I've ever worked with, Scott Ellis, who is just brilliant. And we would do these readings and he would bring people into the readings that he had worked with and said, just bring this person in for the reading. And by the end of that reading, that person was cast. Uh -huh. he, he knew instinctively who was right for, he knew my writing, he knew David's music and he knew who was gonna be right for it. And one by one, people would come in for the reading and they, I think we only actually had casting sessions for two roles in that show. Everything else was cast in readings. And when Scott Ellis came on board to do it, he said, I'll only do this if Santino Fontana plays Michael Dorsey. So that was a, that was a, if we wanted Scott, we got Santino and that was a gift to us because he was brilliant and brilliant in the role. So that time it's hard. It, it, the, it was easy. Other, other things are not so easy. We have a, I'm doing this show right now called Shucked. Yes. Sadly, we lost one of my favorite actors in the show to another show, um, which broke my heart, truly broke my heart. And we're in the process of recasting it now. And it's really hard because I started writing. I wrote that, started writing that part for that actor who did it brilliantly, brilliantly. He's consummate. He was consummate. And it's hard for me because everybody I'm watching audition for and I can't get him out of my head. And I have to now think of that role differently and write it for whoever's going to now take over that role. But it's really hard. It's a very hard role because it's a lot of just, it's a lot of jokes. Uh, and one of the things that I've learned is that musical theater programs across this country do not teach comedy. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a flaw in these systems. Um, Cause I watch actors come in who are phenomenal actors and great, know how to sell a song, not, but don't know comedy rhythms. They don't understand comedy. And I wish these college programs would teach comedy to these kids who are gonna try to go in and navigate a landscape of musical theater where comedy is important um, and they don't teach it. So it's challenging. But then they have, there are actors and act, there are performers I don't, uh, uh, out there that are phenomenal. You, you know, you look at, uh, there's a hand, you look at, you know, Leslie Margarita and, and, and uh, I mean, so many of them that just know comedy and where it lives, but it's hard. You gotta, it's hard to find people. Yeah. And how, or what was the process like of sort of turning Moonshine into Shucked? And what made you decide to sort of not just continue with that original concept? And Well, that's a long story and I won't go into the details of it, but what happened is I got asked, there was a TV show many, many years ago called Hee Haw that was on the air for like 25 years. And it was a variety show. It was a country, it was a country music variety skit show. So it was sort of think Saturday Night Live many years ago, musical guests, every skit was like 10 seconds and long. They were, and, they were, and it was, it was an amazing, it brought country music into the forefront of contemporary culture, but it also was sort of misogynistic and politically incorrect. And it, there was a lot wrong with it, um, but it was iconic. And for its time, it lived where it lived. 
I used to watch it when I was with my grandfather when I was a little kid, and um, I loved the vaudeville aspect of it, the, the fast comedy, the jokes and all that. So the Grand Ole Opry, which is an iconic palace of country music in Nashville, owned the rights to it. They called me and said, we want to make it into a musical. Would you be interested? I said, sure, but I don't want to do like a sit down show in Branson, Missouri. I want to do a book musical. I did. They they knew they wanted very authentic country music artists to write the score and not Broadway people trying to write country. And I met with a bunch of people, but they always knew who they wanted. And they they finally hooked me up with um, Brandy Clark and Shane McAnally, who are iconic country artists in many, many ways. Shane has had more number one country hits than any other writer producer. Brandy Clark is an iconic songwriter and performer on, on a world tour right now. And we started writing the show. And the show ended up going in a, a lot, a lot happened, which I won't go into, but by the time we opened the show, the three of us felt like we had lost control of what we wanted to write. We felt like the show had gone in a direction, which wasn't the direction we sort of set out to do and we needed to reset. And so we just said, let's let this go. It didn't work the way we wanted it to work, which happens sometimes. And we let like three or four years pass and we let all our contracts and all, everything having to do with the Opry and all those, we decided Hee Haw was not the right source material for the show we wanted to write. So we a few years later, we all got on the phone again and said, we love working together, let's start over. And there was this little seed of an idea that was buried in that version that we loved. And so we said, all right, let's start over. We, so we, the three of us started over, took a couple of years to write a new version of this, got New, new producer, new director, new cast, sort of let that whole other show go. Um, kept certain things about it that we loved, but changed the story, changed the tone, changed everything about it, really. It's a different show. And, and, and so much of it came because the three of us loved writing together. They're, they're phenomenal. The music to Shucked is one of my favorite scores I've ever been involved with. It is just, the music is glorious storytelling music. It, they're country artists, but the music also, it feels authentic country in a pop way, but it feels very much like a Broadway score. Uh, it's, I think people will be surprised by it. They're going to love it. I think. I may be wrong. I've been wrong a lot. <laughs> I wasn't wrong to do this interview, though. Um, so that's sort of how Shuck came to be. You know, this glorious producer, Mike Bosner, who had done Beautiful and Sunset Boulevard and a lot of stuff, is a huge country music fan and knew... Uh, Shane McAnally, knew Shane McAnally's husband, I think. His wife knew Shane's husband and had heard about this show in Dallas and heard it was really funny um, and said, hey, whatever happened to that? And we said, well, just what happens, we're working on a, ver a new version of it. And he said, I, I, I want to let me know when it's done. And we did. And he, he um, said, I want to do this. And then along comes Jack O'Brien who's read the script and said, I will, if I don't do this, I'm going to make sure you are all killed. <laughs> <laughs> and brought Jack O'Brien, who is, I, I mean, Jack O'Brien. He's right. a living legend, as you know, um, of, of many, many genres. And, 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 uh, and um, it just, everything started to fit. Everything started to feel right. For the first time, really, with the show, it felt like we were on the right track to what we wanted to write. Uh, not that the other version wasn't, it just sometimes a show doesn't come together the way you think. Um, right. And 
it did. It just sort of came together and sort of took, got to, you know, got a life of its own. And now we're opening on, on April 4th. Yes, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, with both Tilti and Chuck dealing with properties that might seem a little bit outdated, the originals, yeah. and specifically with Tilti, what was that process like of changing sort of the dynamic between the two main characters and cutting some characters and all that? Well, well first of all, we're shocked. There is no underlying source material. We, we had nothing to do with anything else. Shucked is now a completely original idea, original everything. It's a new original musical, so there's no underlying source material at all. Um, Tootsie was challenging. It's especially something like Tootsie because it's iconic. It's the number two comedy of all time at the American Film Institute. Uh, people are sort of going in expecting something because they know the movie so well. Uh, I think it's really important it's really important to let, you have to be able to let go of what was there and write your version of it. It's a, stage is a different medium than film. Stage is not cinematic, stage is theatrical. Things don't translate the same way. Stories don't work the same way. You have, a mu you have music, which you don't have in the movie. So music takes up 45 minutes of the, of the script that you can't have dialogue. So you've got to, you lose characters because there's no time for those characters. You, you're telling the story in a completely different way. As we were writing Tootsie, uh, the Me Too movement took, took rise in this country, which was a really important thing. But suddenly we were looking at a story about a man who perpetrates somebody else's experience that was not authentic to them and what that means. And we, literally halfway through it, had to look at it and say, gotta do this differently. I knew going in, there were things about the movie that I felt, I think I thought a lot of the comedy came from uh, a sense of homophobia at the time. I think a lot of the comedy came from a sense of transphobia at the time. I understand it, it was a different time. And that, um, but I knew that in doing Tootsie, we had to take that into account and address those things and and be and navigate it very carefully, very carefully. In fact, after we opened, we went back in and made some more changes to it as the world continued to change and realized that there were certain things in it that certain demographic might find offensive that I had, look, I'm a cis white male. I can only write so much. I can write character, I can write comedy, I can write, but I haven't walked in certain people's shoes. So I think for me, it was very important and David to have conversations with people who had lived that experience for which then I could translate that through the prism of my talent or my writing. Um, but I could not ever uh, believe that I had lived that because I had, you can only live certain things in the body and skin you were born in. And so it was really important to understand the experience through the, through the eyes of the people that have lived it and then, and then try to write that. Uh, uh, and that's what we did. I worked very closely with a lot of women on the forefront of the feminist movement. I worked very closely with Glad. I worked very closely with a lot, whoever I, I could. And the production, the producers were so generous about whatever it cost they were going to pay it to try to get it right, to try to get it right. Um, and I think we got a lot of it right. Some things I don't know that you'll ever get right. Uh, but it was really important to find the authenticity of the period for which we were telling that story, which is very different than the movie. And how do you approach an issue like that if it's a TV show like, say, Living Single or something like that, where you're writing about characters who are different from you and where you might not have as much time to do that? You don't have as much time. Right. 
you're writing a, a, a sit, those sitcoms in those days, you're writing it, you got a week, you have like four days to do that. Well, the woman who created Living Single, Yvette Lee Bowser, is um, an incredible showrunner and mentor. And the thing about something, and the cast, the, the, act, the actors and actresses that were in that show, uh, were, you know, they were very, they knew who they were. I, I used to say, again, I would write it Jewish. I would write it white and Jewish. And they would, and they would figure out, they would translate it into, a, into what they believed was authentic to them. And here's the thing. If you, we would come up with, with situations every episode that were, that were relatable to no matter who you were watching that show. And then you sort of then have to, have to, uh, siphon that down to be authentic to the experience of those characters for African-American women living together, fi at a finding the, who they are, those friendships. Friendships between four African-American women are going to be very different than friendships between four Caucasian women or four Asian women. Or, and so you work as a, a team and you work and you find the authenticity of that. But it's always led by this uh, the woman who created the show who had a really good understanding of how to turn my comedy into the comedy that was right for the show. Uh, and and she, this, this is a woman who taught me so much about comedy and about writing comedy and about authenticity. Um, again, you gather people along the way who mentor you and teach you and hope that, you're, that your, your ego is not so big that you can't find humility and learn from people who are better than you. I think that's always the challenge. It's always the challenge, not to lose your voice, but to listen to what other people are telling you who have more experience and, and are smart. And was there a, ever a pilot you worked on that didn't end up being picked up that you were especially sort of proud of? Or So many, so <laughs> many, so many. Yes, many, many. I can tell you, all right, I'll give you three right now. One was a pilot I did just a couple of years ago called... Um, called uh, uh, Football Book Club, true story, about uh, a football player named Malcolm Mitchell, who played for the, he played in Atlanta for the Atlanta Gators and then went on to play for the New England Patriots. An inspiring man who went to high school and college and was an incredible football player and they kept elevating him uh, because of his athletic ability, but he didn't know how to read. And, they, and nobody cared. People would just say, yeah, we'll let you graduate. We'll let you graduate. We need you on the team. And he felt such an embarrassment about that. And he taught himself to read. And he became a, an advocate for literacy while he was becoming this huge football star. True story. And he was, he was in Barnes & Noble in Atlanta, Georgia, and met this 50-year-old woman who had no idea who he, that he was this football star and started talking about books. And she said to him, listen, I've got this book club of like 40 and 50 year old Southern women. Why don't you join a book club? So this 20 something year old tatted up African-American uh, iconic football star from a very poor background. And joins this book club with this 40 and 50 year old Southern, very refined Southern Baptist, Southern women. And it was about the coming together of these two cultures through literature. Uh -huh. It was at Fox and the it was a phenomenal show that did not get picked up. Uh, and that, that broke my heart. There was another show I did at ABC called Smotherhood, 
which which I did with a wonderful producer, Lindy Asher. It was at ABC with ABC Studios or Sony Studios. And it was about my relationship with my mother. It was really Ah. about a mother who had given up custody of her child. And years later, the child needed something from the mother. And the mother agreed only to do it if she would let, if the child would let her try to make amends for the mistakes she had made in her life. And it was about them trying to figure each other out later in life and have a relationship. And it was really good. And it didn't get picked up. And it broke my heart. Um, anyway, there's a there's a, a highway of roadkill, and then there was another pilot I did. I'll give the third one that Kenny Leone directed, and it was based on a movie from the 1970s called Car Wash. Big me- movie, and we did it as a musical series at ABC with Universal uh-huh. Television, and I loved it, and it didn't get picked up. And sometimes shows that get, don't get picked up for many many reasons, um, and so uh, that's just a few. But yeah, I've had many more shows not picked up that I've loved than I have had picked up so yeah right um and then you have shows picked up i did a show years ago called high society and it was sort of an american inspired by a british tv show called absolutely fabulous uh was it was gene smart and mary mcdonald and faith prince um and david rashi and it was on the it was on the air for one season on cbs it was warner brothers it it was very ahead of its time it was really dirty really (laughs) And it just sort of only lasted one season. And to this day, I mourn that. I love that show. I wrote that show with a a writer named Danny Margosis. And we loved that show and just sort of was ahead of its time. It just, what happened is after that show, Will and Grace came on and that sort of changed everything. And had that show come a little later, I think it would have lasted longer, but that's showbiz. (laughs) And so how did the idea for partners come about? That's a whole other story. Well, <laughs> partners um, happened. Uh, so Bob Boyette again. Um, I Bob Boyette at the time was doing a version of Funny Girl before this version of Funny Girl, and he had asked me to come on and work on the book. Uh, that went away. Harvey Firestein wrote this new version, and it's phenomenal. He did a great job with it, but. I had worked for Bob with Bob in LA for many years of television. And while we were t- working on funny girl, I said, Bob, I know you have another series in you. We're going to do another series. Today. And I had then gone back to LA and worked on a, It's sort of a sad story. Uh, I, there was a, a, a Latin superstar named Jenny Rivera who had the number one show on Telemundo and all the networks wanted to develop a sitcom with her. And she met with a whole bunch of writers and I went to her house and met with her and we talked for like four hours and she said, baby, I want you. And so I said, all right, I'm gonna write your, your sitcom. And I, I sort of lived with her for like three months because I was writing about her life and her family. We became very close and I, and we, it went in, uh, we pitched it to every network. There was a huge bidding war for it. We landed at ABC and I called Bob and ABC had been Bob's home for many years. And I said, Bob, come, come do this with me. Come back to LA and write this with me. We'll have a great time. And he said, okay. Huh. And we did. And I wrote the pilot. And the day that I turned in the pilot, she was killed in a plane crash. Uh-huh. Tragic story. And so Bob said, all right, I'm going back to New York. And we got a phone call right before he left from Lionsgate saying, we just made a deal with Kelsey Grammer and Martin Lawrence to star in a TV show together. Would you be in, we know that the Jenny Rivera show didn't happen, but we know you were working together. And Bob was the master. Bob Boyette created the three-day, four-day work week in sitcoms. He, 
and this was a 1090, which is a whole other formula. You don't make a pilot, you shoot 10 episodes, you air 10 episodes, and if those 10 episodes do a certain rating in a certain demographic, it's all very complicated, they pick up 90 episodes. So you shoot 100 episodes in two years. You just do two a week, no rehearsal. It's crazy. And Bob was a master at that. So they called us and said, would you be interested in doing this show? And we said, sure. So we came up with this idea about these two lawyers, one sort of a, uh, an, uh, uh, an urban man of the people, and one sort of this erudite, uh, uh, very wealthy, you know, um, and brought them together. Um, and that's what what we came up with. It was on FX and uh, it did it. We never, we didn't, we didn't hit the, dem the number we want, needed to hit to get the hundred episodes. So, yeah. And what was it like to work with those two established stars? And Fantastic. I got to tell you, I sometimes I cannot believe how lucky I am. I don't know how this happened. Charles, I really don't. Um, I, you know, you're sitting, you, you get to work with people that you feel so without, without sounding like a hashtag. You just get, you like, you don't know how you lucky enough to get in those situations, how blessed you are. Um, Kelsey Grammer is a master at comedy, a master actor. He came off of years of Cheers and Frasier, knew exactly who he was and what he wanted. And I was like, this is going to be really challenging. And he was, could not have been more generous. Uh -huh. He respected what I did. He participated in what I did. He, in, in, he was collaborative, funny. We had, we had the best time. Martin Lawrence, who came from a very different world, that world of stand-up comedy and movies, um, also was just knew who he was and what he wanted. I mean, he was, you know, I would sit with him for hours and he would tell me, this is what I'm funny at. This is what I do well. Let's write for this. And, and I would. Um, it was amazing. I, I'm sorry that show didn't take off the way it did, I, the way I would have loved it to, but it was, I got to work with these legends. And then also with Bob Boyette and then we had a great writing staff that, I, that Bob and I had put together. And it was amazing. It was amazing. It was really, I, I was, it was, a, all these shows that I've gotten to work on with these incredible people, they all influence you and influence what you do. And again, and you take that with you as you build your art form and your career. And it's a little bit of, of, of this person and that person and all the people that you get to work with that influence you, that inspire you. Um, and you just sort of hope that you can do that for other people. I mean, you sit here, I've, I've gone through your podcasts. You sat and talked to some of the most amazing, iconic, important people that have shaped what our industry is. And I hope that as you talk to them, you're also learning and listening. Oh, yes. Because uh, it's they're, 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 every generation stands on the shoulders of the generation that came before them. And, and I'm a little nervous because I feel like there's a generation now that has a certain arrogance to it. I think they know everything and they, and, and I, I, I admire fighting for what you believe you deserve and who you are, but I also worry that you, that you don't listen to and learn from the people that came before you, because it would be like becoming a doctor and not caring about everything that happened before you walked into that ER and, and not learning about medicine and all the different things that went wrong and right from the famous doctors and influential scientists that came before you. So I worry a little bit about this next generation, but then also people will come along um, that, that absolutely inspire me. And I know it's in really good hands. Oh, yeah. 
And so I would love to um, to take us up closer to the present day by asking, what was the experience of the pandemic like for you? And well, it was it was twofold. One, um, it was as a writer, I'm used to isolating, so it wasn't as hard on me as it was on some people because I spent all my time alone in in an office anyway. The harder part was that my husband was in the house all, all the time, so that. Was, uh, Interestingly enough, it was hard for me because, and, and good in some ways. So right before the pandemic hit, we were about to take shot to do our out of town at the National Theater in DC and it got canceled. And, the, and at the same time, the first national tour, equity tour of Tootsie was about to go out and that got canceled. So both of those things were really sad for me. Ultimately, I won't get into the details, but I know there's a lot of controversy about it. The Tootsie thing, ended up going out as a non-equity tour, which I get no, I have no say in, but it, that had to do with finances and, and, and um, the idea that once COVID was over and shows started going out again, the different touring houses didn't know who was gonna come back to the theater and who wasn't, and they needed to cut costs of what these tours cost. And you can only cut down a show so much until you can't do the show anymore. And then it has to go out non-equity. And I think that decision was made, but I won't go into details because I don't know all of it. Um, but that was sad for me. But I just I love the cast and the tour and the tour. Um, and by Shuck not going to the national, it gave us time to work on the show more. And I think it's a much better show now. So I mean, but interestingly enough, in my film and TV world during COVID, there was so much buying. Nobody could film anything. Nobody could shoot anything. And in order for these executives to keep their jobs, they, they everything went to development. And so I was able to sell a whole bunch of stuff during COVID that I probably wouldn't have sold had it not been COVID because these executives had nothing to do but buy stuff in order to keep their jobs. So it was actually a productive time for me. And so I know the other project that you're working on upcoming is Hercules. And how did that sort of come about? And Well, again, Tom Schumacher and Ben Famigliadia who are, uh, Tom Schumacher, who's the president of Disney Theatrical, um, has always been very supportive of me and my, my work uh, and a mentor for me and a teacher for me. And they asked me to, they came to me and said, they had done it, it, we had, they had done it in the park. I won't go into the details of that. But then when they decided to move forward with it, asked me if I would um, now, you know, take over the show and, and work on it. And I said, absolutely. And then I worked on, so we worked on it for a couple of years and then COVID happened a year or two and we had gotten it down to a script that everybody was happy with and we were gonna go forward. COVID happened, everything was put on hold. During COVID, um, the Black Lives Matter movement happened, which was a really important thing. And when we came out of it and Hercules is moving forward and Hercules is a predominantly um, diverse and and African-American cast. And I said, look, I, I can't write this alone. I said, I, this is not my experience. I can make it funny and I know how to write this story. And the, but there's a certain mentorship between two of the characters at the heart of the story, which is the character Phil and the character Hercules, um, that I have not lived not being, you know, that hasn't been my experience. It's a, I said, and I need you to get me a dramaturg. I need somebody who I can bounce this stuff off of, like I did with Tootsie, to teach me, to, to, to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Because I can't write, because we're living in a very sensitive time right now. 
I can't do that. So uh, Lear de Bessonet, who was our director and who's amazing, and I love her, um, and Tom Schumacher hooked me up with a gentleman who, um, Kwame Kai Armah, who is the artistic director of the Young Vic in London and also a writer and actor and director and everything. And we had some conversations about what I, what I was doing with the show and where I felt I, could, I was running into trouble and all that. And I've never met somebody that was more brilliant and, and loving. And, and I said, Quams, write this with me. Just write it with me. I said, it's gonna be so good if we write it together far better than I can do alone. And he said, okay. And Dis I don't know that Dis the, the, a Disney project is where people, what people associate with him. He's so, uh, you know, he, he works at the Young Vic and does all this really uh, avant-garde, interesting, political, I mean, um, and we started writing it together and he's, he's become my brother and I love writing with him. It was the smartest thing Disney ever offered up for me and said they said yes 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 we think it's important and so that's sort of how it, it came about and it, it's been a lot of drafts and a lot of work and an amazing team um, I don't I think it's a Hercules that people might not expect in a wonderful way I mean it it's still that Alan Menken David Zippel music which is iconic uh and we'll see we'll see I'm very excited we open at Paper Mill, March 1st. March 1st is Hercules, April 4th is shot. Oh, it's wow. going to be a crazy couple of months. <laughs> it's hard because it's a really tough season. It's a very competitive season. There's so many shows. And I and theater is struggling right now. It's struggling to find its footing. I think there's a lot of issues. I think tourism is not back the way it was. I think group sales, which keep theater alive in many ways, is not back because people aren't planning ahead. People are seeing shows the week they want to see the show. Right. Um, I think because so many shows because of COVID, so many shows that have filled houses and have been around for a while have closed and are closing. So it's making room for new shows, which is a great thing, but there's so many new shows, they can't all last. And so it's an interesting time. There's also so many, It's I'm watching real shows that I think are phenomenal, not make it. Uh, and I don't know why, but I also think it's just, it's, a, it's challenging. I, th I think things have to change. I think a lot of things have to change with finance and money. And I know that's hard because it's not, people, people think lower the prices, do that. It's just not, when you're dealing with unions and you're dealing with, it's, it's complicated and uh, it's not people and it's, it's complicated and it's not so easy, but I think that there are smart minds on it and people are aware. I think change is happening. Never happen, change never happens as fast as we want it to, but I think it's happening, but I think theater has to become more accessible and affordable to those making it and those viewing it. I think that has to happen or 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 jobs will suffer. Yeah. I didn't mean to get political, but yes. <laughs> and the very last question I'd love to ask you and talk to you about is what sort of would you like to write in the future? Are there things you want to adapt for the stage? Is it? Well, there are, there's two movies I'm adapting right now. Uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say what they are, but one is sort of an indie film that not a lot of people know, but it's fantastic. And one was a huge comedy from the 1970s. Um, uh, so th those are two things I'm adapting. I wrote a Christmas musical with Eddie Perfect, who wrote the uh, score for Beetlejuice, which I love. And we're about to go out and, and into the marketplace with that. 
Um, there are, there's always stuff I want to, I'll be honest, I sort of now am focusing on original ideas, like Shocked. Uh, I, I've sort of, I've got, like I said, two movie, I, movie projects to stage that I'm doing. I think uh, I don't really have a lot of desire to do more movies to the stage, challenging. Uh, I, I, I'm focusing on, on other ideas that I, that, I, that are more of my experience and that I want to talk about, subjects I want to write about and talk about. Um, uh, the producer, Mike Bosner, that I'm working on Chuck with, I'm doing uh, another original musical with him that, that, I, that I'm developing. Um, I'm working on about to go out and pitch a TV pilot, which is a very difficult pilot to sell because it's about a person. It's a it's a biography about somebody uh, from the 19th century. It's a historic sort of period piece about somebody iconic, and I have a very unique take on it. Uh, I'm I'm writing that. I'm writing a story about uh, my another story about my family and my relationship with my family. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff. Yes, I will do. And I am embarking on writing a play. Uh, I haven't written a play yet and it, I, I have a strong desire to do that. So I'm, I'm narrowing down what I want to write, but I'm going to write a play. So the, the wonderful thing about the, a, a, a world that is constantly changing like ours is there's never, you're never at a loss for something to write about. You well, I look forward to all of it. And thank you for doing this. It's been such an honor too. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by Broadway actress Patty Cohenauer. Patty Cohenauer was the standby for Christine Daae in the original production of The Phantom of the Opera, and her myriad other Broadway credits include A Doll's Life, Big River, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, where she was Tony-nominated for creating the role of Rosa Budd, The Sound of Music, and her other two standby credits, The Light in the Piazza and War Paint. The many shows she's performed in across the country include The Pirates of Penzance on Tour, Bright Star, Grey Gardens, Souvenir, Sweet Adeline, and 1776. You won't want to miss this conversation with a theatrical veteran, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.